Good morning and welcome everyone. Welcome whether you're meeting here in the building or whether you're at home and joining us in worship from home. Today we'll be looking at um, the passage in John where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as an introduction to that, the people of Israel would have read several psalms together and they'd have used them at that feast. And one of them, Psalm 113, I think would be a great way to start our time of worship today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that as we come to you this morning, we can lift our praises to you. Lord, whether our hearts are full of joy and delight, and Lord, that we just want to sing your praises. Lord, whether we're fearful about world events and looking around, Lord, thank you that we can know that you are sovereign over the whole earth. Or Lord, whether we feel poor, needy, Lord, whether we feel broken or overlooked, Lord, whether we feel the desperate cries of our hearts have not been heard, Lord, we come to you knowing that you hear us, that you love us, and Lord, that you treat us like royalty. And thank you, Lord, that as we meet you today, we meet the one who, when he came to the Feast of Tabernacles, was the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. And Lord, that you're the fulfillment of all our hopes. Lord, we lift your praise together. And Lord, we just commit this time to you, Lord, as we meet and as we worship together. Father, we pray that you would bless this time. Father, Lord, that our praises would be acceptable to you. And Lord, as we hear your word and respond to your word, we pray that our hearts would be responsive to you, Lord. Amen. Our reading today is from John's Gospel, chapter 7, starting to read from verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he, he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not from here on my own. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. 
Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Thelma, thank you so much for reading for us. Before we start, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to your word this morning, uh, help me speak the words you've given me uh, with boldness and with clarity. Father, help me to teach clearly. Father, please be at work in all of our hearts this morning. Challenge us, encourage us, draw us closer to you, and stir our hearts afresh with love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we are, we've been working our way through a series looking at John's Gospel, and we come to uh, the last of our series today, concluding in John chapter 7. Uh, last week we saw that there was a great dispute uh, as to who Jesus is, and what we're going to see this morning, that Jesus is the one who quenches uh, the deepest thirst uh, that we have in our hearts. Uh, in his book, uh, Status Anxiety, the modern-day philosopher uh, Alain de Botton uh, observes that uh, in the modern West, uh, in our culture, that it is absolutely shot through with anxiety, uh, that we are swimming uh, in an ocean that screams at us that we have to achieve a higher status than we have, be that status in terms of money, social standing, uh, education, uh, music, the arts, doesn't matter where it is, but society screams at us uh, that we need to have a higher status. And he notes that the forces uh, arrayed against us mean that no matter how hard we swim against this tide, we will always be forced to swim harder and harder and harder, and we'll be driven by anxiety to do that. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, we will always be thirsty. And the philosopher concludes that that's the thirst that eventually, if unchecked, will kill us. And in our reading today, Jesus comes to uh, the people in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And John tells us that Jesus, Jesus comes then and he comes today with a solution 
to that modern day problem that Jesus is the one who can quench the deepest thirst that we have. And this morning, I want us to see three things. Uh, Firstly, I want us to see that our hearts are indeed thirsty. Uh, Secondly, that we are to come to Jesus and to drink. And thirdly, it's a living water that gives us all life. So firstly, our hearts are thirsty. At the start of chapter 7, John tells us that this exchange that uh, Jesus has is recorded uh, in the Feast of Tabernacles. And John tells us this in verses 37 through 38. Do take a look with me. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What I'd like to see this morning is just for us to reflect on these two verses, that there's an invitation to all who are thirsty to come and to drink. Now, the word thirst is quite an evocative word, isn't it? Um, And I guess to a greater or lesser extent, we've all had a sense of real thirst, uh, maybe playing sport aggressively at the end of the match, you're really thirsty. Uh, Or if you've been out on a long walk on a hot day, a glass of cold water can really hit the spot. But not many of us have experienced the thirst that really, really drives us. Now, a fit young person can probably survive two or three days without water. But as the thirst grows, the desire for drink does not become less. As it grows, it grows more and more and more and more. And we want to drink. And if we can't get water, we will drink anything. If we can't get water, we will drink anything. Now, in 1724, there was a sailor by the name of Hassenbach. And he was convicted of a crime on a boat. And as punishment, he was cast off uh, onto an island without food or without water uh, left to die. Uh, Hassenbach, he kept a diary uh, which did survive him. And every day he wrote in his diary. And he describes the way in which thirst for water drove him. And he told us that he would drink absolutely anything. He told us how he uh, drank the blood of green turtles and seabirds, his own urine, and even the urine from the bladders of those turtles that he killed. Uh, in, his, in his diary, he describes how, how he felt. He felt he was being tormented and driven on by this thirst. But without real water, he drank fouler and fouler things. And the imagery of thirst is really powerful because there's a non-physical way in which we can thirst There's a clear sense we have, whether we're Christians or not, that we're all driven by a profound thirst, a thirst that lies right at the very core of who we are. And we have a thirst for meaning, we have a thirst for purpose, and we have a thirst for love. And yet, as we journey through this world, we seem to be completely unable to quench that thirst. Uh, We search and metaphorically, we drink all sorts of things. But that thirst that we have never goes away. Uh, The songwriters, Bucky Jones 
and Dick Lee. Dicky Lee. Uh, with names like that, you'd think they were country and western singers. Uh, and indeed, uh, they were. You'd be right. Uh, they wrote a song called We're Knee Deep in the River and We're Dying of Thirst. Uh, the song that they wrote dwells on the friendships they've had, the sweethearts they've known, the work they've done in the city, all these things that they've had, and they are still thirsty. They sing that they're going through life parched and empty, and they sing a haunting refrain that they're standing knee-deep in a river and dying of thirst. They know that somewhere there is water, that will meet the deepest needs that their souls have, but they don't know how to get it. They sense that they're knee-deep. It's right there, right there, but they just can't get it. So they drink anything, and whatever they drink, it fails to slake the thirst that they have, and it just drives them on to other things. And this thirst that they describe isn't just a thirst that regular people like you and I will have. It's a thirst that even the most extraordinary achievements fails to quench. Uh, Leo Tolstoy and Freddie Mercury both said that no matter how much fame, success, money or applause that they had, it was never enough. There was a profound thirst that nothing could ever satisfy. And I wonder if there are areas in your life this morning, whether you're a believer here uh, or, a, uh, or not, uh, whether it seems that there are parts of your life where you are thirsty, you're dying of thirst, where it feels like you're standing in a river and dying of thirst. And that's where so many people find themselves today, in desperate need of drink, but not knowing where to find the water that their souls so desperately need. And that brings us to our second point. Come to Jesus and drink. Uh, John uh, tells us uh, in chapter 7, at uh, this part of uh, his narrative, that we find ourselves at the Feast of Tabernacles. This whole exchange is set against uh, that backdrop. And I think it's really important for us to spend just a couple of minutes, because we can kind of skip past that Feast of Tabernacles and uh, what, what's happening. But really, it's the context, the framing uh, for this narrative, which is really, really helpful. Only by seeing that can we really see the amazing truths that Jesus says when he says, come to me and drink. Now, for the people of Israel, there were three major festivals that God had called them to. Three annual festivals that everyone was to come to. God had enshrined those uh, in his law, and it didn't matter where you were, three times a year, you came back to Jerusalem for those festivals. So people would travel extraordinary distances uh, to be there. And the Feast of Tabernacles was one of those three festivals. And each one of those festivals was deeply rooted in something that God had done for his people. And the festival was a reminder, helping the people burn that truth into their minds. So what was the Feast of Tabernacles remembering? It was remembering this, that the people were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them from Egypt through 10 plagues. God rescued them, parted the Red Sea, and they journeyed through the desert place to God at Mount Sinai. And as they journeyed through the desert, they lived in 
temporary structures. They lived in booths, little tents. But because they were in the desert place, unsurprisingly, they became short of water. And Exodus 17 tells us, it gives us an account of where the people are really unhappy that they're running out of water. And they come to Moses and they say, we are going to die of thirst. What have you done? What have you done? God draws Moses to a rock at Horeb and he says, strike the rock and out of that rock will come water in abundance, enough for the people to drink. So they lived in booths. And the festival lasted seven days. And as part of the festival, the people would construct these booths just to remember that they were out in the wilderness. But at the heart of the Feast of Tabernacles, right at its very core, was the fact that God remembered that, sorry, the people remembered that God had poured out uh, an enormous amount of living water, of water from a rock. And how did they remember that? Well, every day, what the high priest would do is they would trot off down to a pool, the pool at Siloam, and there they would draw water from the pool, and they would then carry it back to the temple. The people would process behind the priests carrying the water, and they would sing the psalms, and Psalm 113 that we opened the service with today was one of those psalms, 113 through 118. They would take the water to the temple, to the altar, and there they would pour it out. And as they did that, there would be joyous celebration. The people would go wild. But on the last day, on the last day of the festival, the priest would carry water from the pool and process around the altar seven times before pouring out the water. It's a kind of a maximum celebration. Uh, one of the rabbis who wrote at the time said, you've never seen a celebration until you've seen a celebration on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was just an eruption of joy that lasted for hours and hours. And that's the context for Jesus' words. That is where he says, now we see why he says in a loud voice, because there's just so much shouting and jubilation going on. He says on the last, John writes this, on the last day, last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. On the last and the greatest day of the celebration, on the day that the priests pour out water to remember God's miraculous provision of water, Jesus stands up in the middle of that festival, on that day, at that moment, and he says, all of this, this is all about me. This is all pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of the water, the living water that is going to be poured out by God to all of his people. It's quite a bold statement. And it's unsurprising, therefore, isn't it, that the priests send people to have Jesus arrested. Can you see why it's such an inflammatory, such a provocative statement? And then we can start to grasp, can't we, where Jesus is when he makes this statement. And it just takes our breath away. How? How could the people have not been amazed and absolutely astounded by what Jesus had said? Jesus said to them, and he says to us today, if you are thirsty, if you're thirsty, come to me. Come to me and drink rivers 
of living water. How are you doing? Are you thirsty? Do you need that living water? Are you here this morning as someone who doesn't believe or, or maybe you're here and you're not sure if you do believe? Well, let me ask you, are you thirsty? Are you standing knee deep in a river and dying of thirst? Are you trying to quench your thirst with other things and finding your thirst just grows more and more and more? Or maybe you're here today and you gave your life to Christ within the last year or maybe 70 years ago and you find yourself dry and thirsty. Jesus says, wherever you are, come to me. Come to me and drink. Take a look with me. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I know this is only a three-point sermon, but I'm about to smuggle in five points. So uh, five very brief points as we meditate on what Jesus says. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Uh, Firstly, uh, it's an invitation. Yeah, he starts with let. It's not a command. It's not an instruction. It's not a diktat. It's an invitation. Yeah, God loves us enough that he calls us and he waits for us to respond. He's not going to coerce you. If you're here this morning and you don't believe, yet as we're reflecting on this, you find your heart is being strangely warmed. Then that's God at work in your heart, making an invitation to you. Don't leave this morning without quenching that thirst. Speak to Nigel, speak to me, speak to Rob, speak to the person you came with. But today is an invitation from God for you to have your thirst quenched. Secondly, it's an invitation to anyone, anyone, irrespective of race, of color, of nationality, of sexuality, of class or occupation, any history, irrespective of moral achievement. There is no one, there is no one for whom this invitation is not extended. Do you see the radical generosity of God extending that invitation? Thirdly, the only qualification that you need is to be thirsty. For you to want to have that longing in your heart to be quenched. God doesn't ask you to clean up your life first before he'll offer you the water. All you need, all you need is to be thirsty. All you need is to be thirsty. And that's all. Fourthly, come to Jesus. Jesus says that there is no other way. For your thirst to be quenched. No other way for the deepest need of your heart to be met. Nothing other than the living water that only Jesus provides will meet your needs. No other religion, no other system of thought, no other practice, nothing other than Jesus. And fifthly, we're called simply to drink. It's not an exam to pass. There are no hurdles to clear. Just drink and drink and drink. The drink is free. He doesn't want you to pay for that water. He doesn't offer just enough water for you to wet your lips. 
He offers you enough water to quench your thirst. He'll give us as much as we want, and it's a free gift offered in abundance, exactly what our hearts need. It's amazing, isn't it? That is amazing. And what is this living water that, uh, that Jesus offers? Uh, the answer, we're told, as he goes on in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Believing in Jesus means that you will have these rivers of living water flowing within you. It's the means by which the thirst, the deepest thirst that we have is quenched. The pouring of water on that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is met with an absolute overflow, an outburst of praise and joy. Uh, We're not talking here about a delight in uh, our circumstances, but it's a deep, steady, it's a profound conviction that we are loved beyond measure and we are fully known. That we are loved beyond measure. And that's the joy that gives us the ballast that we need, the strength uh, that we need to make it through the troubles of life. A joy uh, that when it comes uh, is poured into our hearts by God. It's a joy that reminds us that we are loved. It's the joy that we need, nothing else will do. The things that our hearts go after, sadly in the world, uh, to try to quench our thirst, never give us that lasting satisfaction or that deep joy. They offer the prospect, sure, but they never meet that need. They never deliver. Never deliver. Our careers, they never love us. Our careers demand more and more and more. They demand that we sacrifice birthdays, anniversaries, days away with families, bedtimes, story times and holidays. And then as soon as we're no longer meeting our targets, budgets change, the economy turns, or we retire, our careers kill us our looks never love us our looks never love us Uh, with the passage of time it takes more time effort and money doesn't it Uh, to hold on to the illusion of youth but with the passing of every day we die a thousand deaths as we sit in front of the mirror as age takes away our youth our social standing never loves us Fads change, don't they? So we're constantly having to reinvent ourselves to present to the world what we think the world wants us to see. A new me is being created daily and then being put to death just as quickly. A momentary lapse on social media and we're cancelled. We're killed by social media. And Christian, how about you this morning? Do you find that your life is riddled with uh, paralyzing and overwhelming anxiety? Do you find that your life is marked by being easily hurt by the words of others? Are you constantly seeking the approval of people? And so you volunteer for everything you can, and then you're upset because people haven't asked you. Does fear or embarrassment of the gospel stop you speaking out about Jesus? Is your life filled with inordinate worry? Does it constantly make you overthink every situation and stop you doing things? Does it drain the very joy 
out of your life? Is there an explosive rage which bubbles underneath the surface? Or maybe you're plagued by some besetting sin. Perhaps you resent the success of others and you're mad at God for the situation that he's placed you in. Do you lack a desire to read God's word, to meet with his people, to gather together? Is your prayer life a chore? Friends, if this is you, or if something like this is roosting in your heart, you're thirsty. You've lost sight of the depth of God's love for you. Your perspective on God's promises have become too small. You're thirsty. So how do we drink the water? How do we drink the water that we need? And that brings us to our final point. Living water that gives us life. The heart of our thirst, the very heart of our thirst, lies deep down in the belief that we have that we are not lovely. Because we know deep down that our thoughts are oftentimes dark, aren't they? And as we look back across our lives, we can see the people that we've hurt, sometimes really badly. The things that we've said or done. Or maybe there are attitudes that we hide, things that we do in the dark that we think no one knows. We're frightened that if people really knew the state of my heart, if they really knew the state of my heart, that they wouldn't love me. And deep down we know, I know, that I'm not that lovely. And we reason, don't we, if someone really knew, if someone really knew, I couldn't be loved. Sure, people might love the me that I project to the world. But if God really knew, would he love me? Or would he turn his face from me? And those are the lies that the devil tells us. That's the operating system that runs away in our hearts. We think that God couldn't love me the way that I am. And so we start to patch up a righteousness of our own. We try to be good. We try to restrain our hearts of the evil that they seek to do. And that makes us thirsty. But John gives us the truth that we need, that our hearts most desperately need, so that we can drink that living water. Take a look at verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Eight times, eight times through the book of John, John tells us that Jesus' focus is his hour, the hour. He's constantly talking about his hour. And that hour is the time when Jesus is high and lifted up on a wooden cross. That's his hour when he is glorified. And that is the ground beat to the gospel of John. Christ's journey to the cross. Now Christ's journey to the cross does not mean that he was a, a, a terrible victim. Uh, he wasn't overcome by the powers of darkness. Jesus came for one reason only. To live the life that we should have lived. And then to die the death that we deserve. In our place. See Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He really, really does know us. He knows you and he knows me. And he knows us all the way to the bottom. Even the dark parts of our hearts that 
well that I'm too frightened to look at myself. And he still came. He still came. Jesus' love for each one of us is so great that he willingly left the throne room in heaven. And when they nailed Christ to the cross, his love for you and for me was so strong that he stayed. He stayed to the very end, bearing the punishment that we deserve. And so we can know that we are loved all the way to the bottom because Christ came and he stayed on the cross bearing our penalty. It's amazing, isn't it? And on the cross, what did Jesus cry out? He cried out, I thirst. I thirst. As Christ died on the cross, the living water dried up in Jesus so that it could flow in you and in me. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. The spirit left Jesus and Jesus died. And he did that so that the spirit could come and dwell in each one of us, that we are not left alone. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a counselor. And in the heart of the Christian, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to help burn those truths that we so desperately need into our hearts. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we are children of God and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He lives in our hearts and he points us to that truth. Uh, To paraphrase Martin Luther, the counselor beats into our skulls the truth that we are saved by Jesus' work on the cross and not by anything that we do. The Holy Spirit makes the work of Jesus on the cross brilliantly bright in our minds. As the Holy Spirit makes God's promises, the word of God, burn brightly in your heart, your thirst will be quenched. That's how we drink the living water. If you're anxious, the Holy Spirit reminds you of God's good promises and purposes, his victory over evil and the truth that death has been conquered. He will quench your thirst. Come to him and drink. If you're sad, the Holy Spirit will comfort you through the words of the Psalms. Come to him and drink. If you're tempted by the things of the world, the Holy Spirit will remind you of your true and infinite valuable inheritance in heaven. He will quench your thirst. If you feel slighted by others, the Holy Spirit will remind you of your status as a child of God. Come to him and he will quench your thirst. If the news of war paralyzes you, the Holy Spirit reminds you that God still invites you and he is sovereign over the whole world. He will quench your thirst. If your health fails you, the Holy Spirit reminds you that you still work with him in the gospel. The Holy Spirit reminds you of your resurrection hope. Come to him and he will, th- he will quench your thirst. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you know Christ, but your heart is burning in your chest this morning, then don't let, don't let this morning pass you by. Speak to Nigel or to me. Christian friend, if you're thirsty, allow the Holy Spirit to bring God's truths to your heart. 
Know that you've been rescued from the wrath of God. Know that he knows you all the way to the bottom and has set his love on you. Know that you can trust Jesus because he has been raised from the dead. And that is the same promise that is extended to you. Don't thirst any longer. Go to Jesus and drink. Quench your thirst. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, that we can have living water quenching our thirst, living water which you provide. Help us to drink from that river. Help us to no longer search for satisfaction in the things of the world. Father, we pray that your spirit would indeed be at work in our hearts, reminding us afresh of your promises. Allow us to trust in them more. And Father, we pray that as we do that, you would grant us the strength that we need to live lives that glorify your name. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.